Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the first in a series of four CMEO snacks titled Reinforcing Personalized Care for Uterine Fibroids, Updating Practices to Improve Outcome. The CMEO snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from Pfizer. I'm Dr. Ayman Al-Hindi, tenured professor and vice chair for research at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. I'm a gynecologist and minimally invasive surgeon at University of Chicago Medical Center. Eliminating health disparity in uterine fibroids is the primary focus of our research program. Our fibroid research program has been funded by NIH for the last 22 years continuously. I'm so pleased to be joined today by two distinguished colleagues. Dr. Lauren Powell, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, thank you. My name is Dr. Lauren Powell. I'm a board-certified family medicine physician. I see patients um, currently 16 and up, and I'm currently in private practice right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome. I'm also very pleased to be joined today by Ms. Danica gray Valgran the founder and CEO of the White Dress Project. Ms. Velbrun, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Alhendi. Hello, everyone. I am Tanika Gray-Valbrun. I am the CEO and founder of the White Dress Project. We are a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to raising awareness of uterine fibroids. And we love partnering um, with our uh, physicians across the country uh, who help us spread the message of fibroid awareness. So really happy to be joined here today. Thank you and welcome. To open the discussion today, let me review our learning objective. Evaluate the impact of uterine fibroids on both patients and the healthcare system. Uh, I think it's really important uh, we start uh, the discussion off by considering the economic impact of uterine fibroids from an epidemiological and financial standpoint. This condition is highly prevalent, unfortunately, and costs the system significantly. Uh, Ms. Valbrun, do you have any thoughts to add here on the economic side, economic impact? Yes, absolutely. I love that we are starting um, with this question because it is often something that is not addressed as, as readily, just the economic burden on uh, patients of uterine fibroids. I think it's um, NIH that quotes that $17 billion annually in loss of work and short-term disability and absenteeism um, can be contributed to uh, women who are out for uterine fibroids. So when we think of those costs, when we think of the costs for uh, fertility treatments as someone who has undergone fertility treatments with uterine fibroids, thinking of those costs, and then just on the, I hate to say bare minimum, but when we think of just the costs of um, sanitary napkins and doctor's visits and mental health um, that may be added to um, someone who has uterine fibroids. The costs and the economic burden overall can be quite exorbitant. Um, when you think of the out-of-pocket costs for uh, having surgery to treat um, uterine fibroids. So when you add all of those up, it is quite an economic burden that I don't think that we're considering. I believe um, there is some data around um, $34 billion annually um, for uterine fibroids is spent. Um, so when we think about all of those together, um, and I'd be happy to share um, more statistics and, and more resources to statistics, um, but when we think of all of those together, it is quite an economic burden for the patient. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Dr. Powell, would you mind sharing some of the economic impact you have seen as a practicing clinician with the audience as well? Sure. So, of course, you know, as a primary care physician, one of my goals is always to keep my patients out of the ER. Um, but unfortunately, if, if patients aren't established, if they still don't have a clear diagnosis, patients sometimes will resort to using the ER when they're having symptoms, when they're having excessive bleeding, when they're having excessive pain. Um, and of course, we know, you know, that's not the most efficient use of our, our resources to have to use ER for treatments. So that's definitely something. I have patients whose symptoms are so severe that 
you know, they're on intermittent FMLA for their cycle, which is going to happen every month. And so every month there's days out of the month where they cannot work because physically um, they are unable to work. Um, and then as Dr. Valbaron stated, you know, sometimes fibroids aren't later, aren't discovered until somebody's, you know, trying to have a baby. And so then, you know, if they require any fertility services, that's a huge financial, um, you know, concern and consideration if someone who, you know, didn't think that they were going to have to have now has to consider using some fertility services. So um, definitely a huge economical burden to the healthcare system and to the patient. Absolutely. Thank you both for your insight. I I, I agree 100%. And thank you, Ms. Valpran, for citing that uh, paper. It was done by Dr. Jim Seekers at Hopkins and his team. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the estimate, uh, the annual in the U.S. alone is about $34 billion. But honestly, it is the best estimate we have and most comprehensive economic analysis of the burden of uterine, economic burden of uterine fibroid. But I just have to believe that there are additional things that it's very hard to capture. As, as Dr. Powell said, I had patients tell me, for example, they have been fired from their work because they're being considered lazy. And in fact, all what they had is a severe anemia and they are just fatigued. And actually, sometimes you fall asleep. I had patients fall asleep in my uh, clinic waiting area because of the severe anemia and the iron deficiency anemia because of the heavy bleeding and the fatigue that comes with it. And there are so many other economic and quality of life aspects that we'll talk about a little later that I, I have to feel it's really hard to capture this in a, an economic model. So, so I think we all should consider those 34 billion or more uh, as a, the bare minimum or really kind of underestimation, which speaks for the high economic burden of uterine fibroids. So it's clear that we need to identify patients earlier to provide timely intervention. Clinicians, especially those in primary care position are integral in identifying patients who may be struggling with or at risk for uterine fibroid. So I'm going to direct this to Dr. Powell. Uh, can you please share some of the risk factors for uterine fibroid that clinician, especially in primary care setting, should be aware of? Sure. So, so many, you know, potential risk factors and things. Um, we know race plays a huge role. We know African-Americans um, are significantly more at risk for fibroids. Family history, oftentimes we're seeing this in, in the whole family, my mom, my sister, my aunt, and multiple people in the families have been affected. Um, increasing age is a, is a factor to consider. And then we have some medical factors, obesity, dyslipidemia, if they've had chronic use of a statin or a contraceptive, um, hypertension. Um, oftentimes, you know, we don't really know what, what came first, but patients having uncontrolled hypertension has been linked to large fibroids. Um, alteration in the reproductive tract microbiome, the microbiome not just of our gut is important, but also of our reproductive tract. You know, so that would be exposure to antibiotics, exposure to different medications, our diet. Um, these things are also going to be huge factors um, in, in somebody's risk factors for fibroids. And then, of course, we have some modifiable risk factors, things that, you know, fortunately, we do have control over things like smoking use um, and alcohol use abuse, particularly they've seen it more with um, alcoholic beverages like uh, beer um, exposure to things like relaxers, things that, you know, uh, many women in African-American culture have been exposed to, uh, oftentimes not not really in our control um, at a young age. I know I've been exposed to, you know, some of these products as early as four years old. So just kind of things, some things that have been a part of our culture. Vitamin D deficiency, which is huge. 97% of African-Americans tend to be vitamin D deficient. And we're seeing that, um, you know, this this inverse relationship where the lower the vitamin D, you know, is associated with the larger the fibroid. So, you know, vitamin D deficiency and, and vitamin D excess. And so many patients don't often get their vitamin D checked with physicals. It's not considered, you know, quote unquote, standard of care. But for me, you know, anybody, everybody needs to be getting their vitamin D checked. And then, of course, the diet, diet, which is so important with, with so many things, but particularly with fibroids, you know, we're thinking about processed food. We're thinking about the highly inflammatory foods. We're thinking about the sugary foods. Um, physical inactivity, um, definitely a factor because, they, of course, they're going to contribute to obesity and dyslipidemia, but independently associated with fibroids as well. And then, of course, being exposed to a high level of stress. 
Absolutely. Thank you. I, I was like really happy to, to look at this nice comprehensive description of the risk factors. And I have to say, personally, also, uh, I was happy because you mentioned several of the risk factors that our group were first to contribute to the literature. And, and I think it's really important that, you know, the earlier and the more we have understanding of these risk factors, the earlier we can identify patients that uh, on their way to develop fibroid or at least have very early fibroid so that we can intervene early and, and that bring the, the, the concept of actually prevention of uterine fibroids, which is, is very exciting and future coming. Um, so beyond the risk factors, providers should really seek to identify those patient-specific symptoms that may signal that the patient is struggling with uterine fibroids. So I'm going to direct this to you, Ms. Valperin. From the patient perspective, what specific physical impact of uterine fibroids would be important for the clinician to assess? Yeah, I think this is a great question, Dr. Alhindi, um, because I think um, if we can begin to hear some of the ways that uh, patients describe things, and if we can share that message with other physicians, then I think it's it really is important and helps with the physician-patient uh, relationship. Um, so I always start by saying I think it's really important um, for physicians to take a moment to listen to um, the way patients are describing some of their quality of life symptoms um, that they are mentioning. I, throughout my fibroid journey, have always talked about how many uh, sanitary napkins I need to buy. So from a clinical perspective, that is not you know, maybe hard data or something that can be measured, but it is something that physicians need to listen to because depending on how many sanitary napkins one is purchasing, um, then that can be an indicator of how much they are bleeding. I've often talked about um, mattresses and how many I've had to buy, difficulty, um, you know, purchasing cars and not being able to purchase cars with cloth seats um, because I've always had to um, think about how I can get stains out of um, of my car seats easily. So some of the things that um, a patient talks about when they're talking about quality of life things, um, I think is important to um, really determine how their quality of life is being impacted. Um, some physical things that I think that physicians need to always um, try to address is definitely bloating. Um, when patients describe um, heavy bleeding, how is it described? Um, oftentimes, because we've normalized these symptoms so much, we're not thinking that something like clotting is necessarily um, something that we should be alarmed by. Um, but are they describing clotting? Are they describing feeling faint in the shower? Are they saying, I, I always feel like I want to take a nap? Um, they don't feel like they can hang out with friends. They always feel down. So when you think of these symptoms, they're physical symptoms, but they're also mental health symptoms. They're also um, ways that they feel like they show up among their friends and in their career. So admittedly, uh, patients always don't know how to properly describe um, their symptoms, but I would ask that physicians look out for these particular ways that they may, may be describing how their quality of life is impacted. And then that can obviously lead to other questions that can determine um, the physical ailments that they may be having. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And as you mentioned, now we're going to go to the doctors. To She put the burden on you, Dr. Powell, um, about the role of the doctor. But I just want to agree with you, uh, Ms. Felperin. Uh, there's a lot of normalization uh, happening uh, in patients with heavy menstrual bleeding and uterine fibroid. And that, unfortunately, many times lead to a delayed diagnosis, and by that time, the disease has advanced quite a bit. So I, I can't emphasize this enough, but I know your uh, wide dress project and, and others are really working on increasing awareness of that. And this, this particular uh, series of uh, recording actually is also aiming in that direction. 
But Dr. Powell, yes, she put the burden on the doctors now. So I want to go to you. Uh, would you mind providing some clinical insight now from the doctor's side into key physical symptoms of uterine fibroids that you feel may be better screened or assessed in the primary care setting? Sure. And I think Dr. Valbrun said it appropriately. Patients don't know what's normal or abnormal. To them, what they're experiencing is normal. It's their normal. You know, oftentimes as women, we're not sitting around talking about our cycles. How many days do you bleed? How many days do I bleed? How many pads do you? So all we know is our own cycle. So we cannot ask patients, do you have normal cycles? The, the answer is always going to be yes, because it's their normal. And they may know what their mom's cycle is, is like, but like we've said earlier, oftentimes we're seeing fibroids in entire, in, in entire families. And so I think it's important that we ask patients, what is your cycle like? And just let them talk. Just let them talk and let them to say what their, what their cycles are like. Um, and then as the physician, it's our, our you know, responsibility to recognize that is not normal, that is not appropriate. Um, I have patients who come and, you know, they say, well, I take iron because I'm anemic. Why are you anemic? Anemia is not normal. So why are you anemic? You know, there should be a reason um, as to why that you're anemic. And so anytime I get somebody CBC back and they're anemic, I'm, I'm looking at two places, right? I'm looking in their uterus and I'm looking at their colon. And I'm not going to wait for a patient to tell me, yes, I still I have abnormal bleeding. I'm going to get an ultrasound and get some objective data. Um, again, doing the physical exam, I've, you know, done exams and, and palpated and just during, you know, their pap smear have felt a fullness. And I've said, do you, have you ever felt this before? Oh yeah, I, I feel this sometimes. Like I, it doesn't allow me to sleep on my stomach, but other than that, I'm fine. So it's really up to us, you know, to do, to be the investigator and, and, and figure out what's going on with, with the patient and really ask those, those deep questions and, and let the patient just talk. Because oftentimes they'll tell you, if you listen long enough, they'll tell you and they'll lead you to the diagnosis. So I think the biggest thing is just using open-ended questions and give patients that opportunity to give you insight into what their cycle is like. Absolutely. I agree uh, with both of you 100%. And I just want to touch on two quick points that, that you mentioned, Dr. Powell. Anemia. Uh, many patients have the diagnosis of anemia without really knowing the cause. And, and I have seen patients, uh, and, and I think you, you kind of alluded to that, uh, who has been sent to everybody uh, except the gynecologist to look for the reason for their iron deficiency anemia, to the uh, gastroenterologist, to you know, the internist, to many other services to, to look for everything and everything, of course, come back normal. And then finally, they say, okay, well, maybe go and see the gynecologist. And, and sure enough, they have heaviness or bleeding because of fibroid. So I, I totally agree with you. Uh, also on the, on the concept of using the patient as her own control, because you're absolutely right. Uh, everybody, that's the normalization thing that Ms. Uh, Valperan mentioned earlier. Uh, if you ask them directly, you'll say, yeah, it's normal. It's, it's fine. It's fine. But then if you ask them to compare themselves to themselves, like, have you seen a change in your period? So now she's comparing to herself. And then absolutely, as you mentioned, they start to open up. Oh, yeah, now it's a little longer. Now it's a bit heavier. Now I have irregular bleeding. And, and, and I think any patient, and, and that go, goes back to the White Dress Foundation and, and many others, and really all of us, tell the patient, if you feel any change in your period, you should seek help. You shouldn't just sleep on it. So, so I think this is this is a great discussion. Um, so I also believe it's very important to consider the psychosocial and quality of life impact of uterine fibroids. For some patients, these symptoms may be even more distressing than the physical ones, actually, that they have yeah. been managing through their life. So I'm going to direct this to you, Ms. Valperan. Can you provide our audience with some insight in that regard? Yes, of course. And I just wanted to piggyback on what you said, um, Dr. Al-Hindi, um, before. Just asking a patient if there's any change, I think is a phenomenal question. And as Dr. Powell mentioned as well, just open-ended questions because, you know, as a patient, we can definitely tell the story of our journey, um, not always to uh give appropriate data. Um, but to Dr. Powell's point, there are a lot of times um, we are able to um, express changes, express how we're feeling, um, which leads me to, to this answer. 
we really have to consider the mental health component because that is um, really daunting as you're on your fiber journey, thinking about how many times am I bleeding? How many times have I had to cancel on a friend? How many times have I had to call in sick to work? And all of these things can lead to depression and anxiety. Um, in my personal case, it has caused a great deal of anxiety when it comes on to um, my goals for motherhood. So multiple IVF cycles, um, suffering a miscarriage, um, all of these things that you are undergoing um, along with just life, right, um, can add and just compound itself um, and, and really have an impact on your mental health. Um, I think when I think about our community and the stories that we hear within our community, about um, failed pregnancy attempts or um, just the impact on relationships, um, the impact on career. When you think of all of those things, um, along with the physical aspects that you're dealing with, along with hearing a diagnosis, along with you know not knowing what your future outcome will be for motherhood, if that's your desire, all of those things can have a grave impact. And I think that when we think about how we're addressing patients and how we're um, asking them to um, share and be a part of this shared decision-making, et cetera, I think we have to consider the mental health component. It's not just about putting you on another treatment option because that also can be taxing. So really, how can we comprehensively um, as a physician and as a patient work together to ensure that we're, we're not only getting the best physical outcome, but we're also um, addressing any mental health concerns that, that they may, may have. And, you know, I'm not saying that every gynecologist or every primary care physician should, you know, take on um, the role of mental health professionals. But I can count on my hand, after all I've been through, um, the amount of times that a physician has said to me, hey, have, have, do you have a therapist or have you seen someone? And I think it is something that is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, doctors, um, I think it's something that can be incorporated in the conversation when you're dealing with these uh, diagnosis and these treatment plans and what's happening in my body when all of that can be so overwhelming. As a patient, you already feel as if um, your body is somewhat failing you. Um, so I don't think that mentioning um, some route to mental health care um, is inappropriate. And I would like to see our physicians do that more often um, because there's something to be said about the mental health impact when you're bleeding for 21 days in a row, when you can't wear a white dress because you don't feel comfortable, when everything you put on, you look like you're pregnant. There is something that is done to your psyche um, that I think we need to be talking about more and not always just addressing the physical impact that it can have. Absolutely. So actually, I'm, I'm going to take your question to Dr. Powell, if you want to comment on that. And, and anything else to share from your practice? Yes, I mean, I think Ms. Valbrun said it perfectly as we seek to make sure patients have the optimal medical care that includes their mental health. Um, you know, for women suffering with fibroids, oftentimes their in, entire life has been flipped upside down and inside out. Their work life, their personal life, their work, their, their travel, everything is dictated around their cycles. Oftentimes women have had to, you know, seek multiple, multiple opinions People are exhausted. They feel like there's no hope. They feel like, um, you know, they desire children and that has now been delayed or it's been denied. And so it is an extremely heavy mental burden for anyone, no matter what you're no matter what you're facing. And so I think it's super important. And I have to remind myself that each time as I'm really seeking to kind of optimize my patient's health when it comes to their blood pressure and their weight and their nutrition and making sure that they get with a a provider that they feel really good about that we're also talking about the mental health and we're talking about how do you feel? I mean, I've had, I had a patient last week who just started crying who came to me for her pre-op visit 
was the first time I'd met her, but she, you know, had met, met a doctor and was going to have a myomectomy and she just started crying during the visit. And she's just was so exhausted. Like it's taken so long to get here. I felt so unwell for so long. And so we just have to remember that, you know, patients again, just like they don't know what's normal, abnormal for their symptoms. You know, they may not bring up that their mental health or that they, this has been extremely exhausting for them or that they feel sad or depressed or that they feel anxious about it. So I do think it's super important that, that we bring it up. And then I also want to just mention that, you know, again, oftentimes these women are severely anemic. So they're, they're just not going to feel well overall. Like you, there's just no way you can feel well when your hemoglobin is below seven. It's just not, it's just not possible. And so um, as a physician, I think it's super important. We just take the initiative and ask patients, like, how are you doing? You know, is there someone that I can get you to talk to? Even that would help um, and start the conversation at least. Absolutely. I, I agree. Great discussion, guys. I'm, I'm really excited about this discussion and it's going to go to the to the general medical community and, and the public in general. Uh, just on that last point, Dr. Powell, about the anemia, I have just seen a patient and I've seen similar patients in the past uh, during my practice, but this is very recent. She came to see me actually because of decreased libido. Just she has no interest in sex. That was the actual um, entry uh, on the clinic schedule. And it turned out that she's just tired. She's just tired. So I, I evaluated the, you know, the usual things and so on. And then she's just, I'm just tired. I'm not interested. And then it turned out it is actually the anemia. She, she has severe iron deficiency anemia because of the heavy bleeding, because of uterine fibroids. So this disease really can come in a very kind of convoluted, uh, unexpected ways and so on. And in and, uh, and this uh, particular patient, we're actually on our way to, to recovery and improvement uh, once we address the, the iron deficiency anemia and their underlying causes. So this is this is great discussion. Um, so um, I think lastly, I would like to talk about the patient-specific impact of uterine fibroid as it relates to reproductive health. We'll touch a little bit about that, but I want to do a little bit deep dive on that. At the same time, I want to expand on the discussion uh, to the impact uterine fibroids have, especially if left unchecked, and they continue to progress and, and get bigger and more advanced, causing significant distress to, to patients. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Powell. Is there any insight that you have here on this aspect as a clinician? Sure. And, and we know, just as you stated, um, you know, if fibroids go undiagnosed or untreated, um, you know, their size can change, the quantity of them can change, and now that changes our treatment options that we may have available. So, um, again, I think it's important that we get a diagnosis early and then we get a treatment plan early. And so oftentimes what I notice a lot often is that patients may know they have fibroids, but they were only offered a hysterectomy. They didn't feel good about that plan, but they were only they were only offered, you know, birth control and they didn't want to be on hormones. So then they did nothing. And so now when we see them, you know, often in the case of wanting to try to conceive, um, now there's an issue. And so now we have to kind of obviously um, address it before that they can they can have a baby. I know for me, um, my fibroid was actually diagnosed when I was going through my infertility workup and I would have, have never known. And so oftentimes as when we're young and maybe they're diagnosed, we don't necessarily um, have a plan of when we want to have children. And so we think maybe it's not as important to address at the time. But what we have to remind patients is, you know, you may not be thinking about children now, but, you know, you may in the future. And if that may be a part of your plan, you know, we have to do something now for your future self that may desire desire children later in life. And so I think it's important, again, that we get a diagnosis as early as possible and then get a treatment plan. And a treatment plan that the patient really feels good about, um, that's something that I always emphasize, you know, to my patients, don't not do anything. You know, if you didn't like what you were offered, offered let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation. Let's get another opinion um, so that you can feel good about your plan. Absolutely, I agree, and 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 I'm glad you mentioned the birth control pills uh, because unfortunately that's what happens a lot. Patient have irregular bleeding or heavy bleeding, they just go ahead and leave the the clinic with a prescription for the birth control pill without actually confirming or securing a diagnosis, without doing an ultrasound, and many times. Uh, those patients don't get better, but after wasting many months and, and uh, the disease progressing, then we find out that they actually it was fibroid from the beginning. So I would just urge uh, our colleagues in primary care and everybody really 
to get to the diagnosis, then start prescribing. And especially now that we have FDA approved uh, medications for fibroids, birth control uh, pills have never uh, been fully evaluated against fibroid and is not FDA approved for this particular disease. I know we've been using it for many years because we didn't have many other options, but now for the last uh, two, three years, we have two FDA approved oral medication, very easy to use, simple prescription, specifically developed against fibroid. So um, I'm going to move to you, Ms. Valperan. As a patient advocate, what do you think patient would appreciate from the clinician in that space? Yeah, I, you know, another great question um, because it, it gives us an opportunity um, just to share from the patient perspective just um, how we want to be listened to. I think we've talked about a lot of the things that we want to see as um you know, to build the physician-patient relationship. Um, but as patients, um, we want to be listened to. Um, there are so many um, health inequities we hear about when we think of um, particularly Black women and just overall being dismissed or minority women overall being dismissed in um, in the physician's office, dismissed um, in terms of their pain not being believed, their symptoms not being taken as seriously. Um, so I think overall, just um, as patients, we want to be listened to. Um, patients are very well aware of the limited time that you all have as physicians, um, but it's important for us to feel that um, a relationship is being built and that there is um, an investment that you're making. And, you know, I understand um, because we interact with so many physicians, I understand the limitations from the physician side as well with time and uh, management and all those things. Um, but it's really important for the patient to feel um, that you want the same outcome that I do. And if we can't get there, what are my next best alternatives? So making sure that we're building a relationship that there is investment in, in what I want. We also want to know um, about all the options, whether you as a physician uh, perform them or not, or have that expertise or not. We want you to um, uh, you know, give referrals to your colleagues um, that may perform other treatment options that may be a better fit for us. We hear so much in our community about women being offered hysterectomy as a first-line option. And when we further investigate, the physician is just not a minimally invasive gynecologist, right? So we want to know all of our options so that as a patient and uh, people who are living with our bodies, we've had our bodies our entire lives, right? So we feel that we are the best um, person to partner with physicians to make the best decisions for our health outcomes. Um, as we've mentioned before, we want physicians to also refer us to other health practitioners who could support us on the journey. So whether that be uh, mental health professionals, whether that be nutritionists, dietitians, um, Dr. Alhindi, I have to take a moment just to applaud you for the work that you're doing with vitamin D and EGCG. Um, so when we think of that, you know, that's not always a gynecologist that we're always going to talk about that with. How does that look in your diet? How does that look with supplements? How does that look with exercise? So we may not always have the opportunity to get to our primary care or a gynecologist to talk about that. But is a nutritionist best? Is a dietitian best? And can they join in our what I like to call our my board of directors, um, my board of health practitioners, um, can they join that group? I also think about uh, acupuncturists, and it may not be right for every patient, but what are some other support uh, health practitioners that can help and join this journey with me? The last thing I'll say is um, I think patients want physicians to be aware of the verbiage and the language um, that they're using in the physician's office. Um, 
you know, I understand that physicians come from a very obviously clinical background and they speak a certain way, but that is not always comprehended um, by patients. So we really have to think of and be aware of, um, you know, cultural things and um, colloquialisms, um, just to be aware that we are effectively communicating um, to patients and that they understand. And all of those things I've said, you know, within a 15-minute visit uh, sometimes can be exhausting and overwhelming and how am I going to get to it all while trying to listen to the patient's story. But I think there are some unique ways that we can um, maybe even out of this discussion come up with because all of these things are important and all of these things are things that patients are saying within our community that they want their doctor um, to provide. And when I think of the physician side, what as um, physicians do you need? I would love, love to hear that because we can relay that to the patient community. One of the things that we, we always say is, you know, write down the changes that are happening between your periods. Write down the changes that are happening when you're intimate and any type of um, sexual intercourse, what's happening there. Write down your mood so that when you go to the doctor, it's not just a constant, uh, you know, rambling on and on session, but you have some uh, key bullet points that you can mention that the doctor can uh, hopefully get data from. Great suggestion. Thank you. Thank you both for your thoughts on discussing the impact of uterine fibroids on reproductive health. I would also like to remind the audience if they are interested in learning more on the treatment options available that providers can consider to spare fertility or, or just learn more about options available for their patient, um, they can access another program this year. So we have a whole other recording on this topic. The title is uh, Guiding the Clinical Management of Uterine Fibroids. Um, I, I totally agree with both of you. Great discussion. So uh, I would now like to move the audience into discussing some of the disparity in diagnosis and management of uterine fiber, especially in the primary care space. Uh, as we discussed at the very beginning, health disparity is a major public health challenge when it comes to uterine fibroids. We know uterine fibroids, unfortunately, at least four times more in uh, women of color, black women and Hispanic women. So, so this is a major health disparity issue. So I'll start with you, Ms. Valperin. Uh, from the patient perspective, what kind of disparities have you seen in the diagnosis and management of uterine fibroids, and how does this impact patients? Yes, so, you know, we hear in our patient community um, a lot of times, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, um, these certain disparities, um, particularly for um, the, that are uh, really on Black women. I don't know how to say that eloquently, right? But it's the truth. Like the literature shows, um, and we've had this disparity um, for a very long time, and we often talk about the impact that it has on Black women. Um, so when we think about disparities in diagnosis and management of uterine fibroids, we're just hearing, and the literature also shows, that Black women are often dismissed. I mentioned it earlier about um, our pain not being um, taken seriously, um, our symptoms not being believed. And I have personally had that happen to me where a physician has said, well, Tanika, you're not, you're not bleeding that badly. Um, and it, it, what it does to your psyche is, is it makes you feel like you're the one that's inaccurate or you're the one that's crazy. Um, no, I really have, well, have I really changed? You know, so it, it, it causes immediate doubt. And that speaks to the disparity and it speaks to, um, people not dealing with their fibroids as quickly as they can. I believe the statistic is, uh, a woman uh, deals with her fibroids, uh, it takes three to five years before she um, does anything about her fibroids in terms of fibroid treatment. Um, so I think it's important for us to have this, this discussion about disparities. Um, being a patient advocate and uh, being a Black woman, I feel like I have experienced this firsthand, and I have also heard it within our community, um, being offered surgery more, more often, um, not being believed, and overall just 
being dismissed when it comes on to fibroids. And I think what that has done is, once again, we talked about it earlier, but normalized um, a lot of the symptoms that we have, and we kind of chalk it up to being a woman, or this is just what periods are like. Um, this is just, I just have to be out of work when my period is happening. I love what um, I believe it's ACOG has done, which is they have now updated their guidelines to say, if it is impacting your quality of life, then it's not normal for you, which I believe Dr. Powell alluded to earlier. So giving agency to back to the patient, I think is a huge um, progressive move forward um, to kind of deal with this disparity issue. Absolutely. I agree with you. ACOG did something about that, but particularly FIGO, the International Federation of OBGYN, uh, all times we used to have this definition uh, for heavy bleeding. It used to be called metoragia and menoragia, and it's more than 80 male or, or six spoonful and so on. I mean, this is not practical. Nobody measured their amount of heavy, of, of menstrual bleeding in spoonful and so on. So FIGO and, and ACOG and WHO and all the international organization came. If the patient feel exactly as you said, if the patient feel her periods are heavy, then they are heavy and we need to investigate and find the reason and so on. So, so I'll, I'll move to you now, Dr. Powell, uh, from the clinical side as a primary care clinician, what are your thoughts on disparity in the diagnosis and management of uterine and fibroids that you have seen or, or, or heard from your patients? Um, so I can say this, you know, um, approximately 2% of physicians are Black female. So very small amount, right? More than, there's more than 2% of Black female patients in the world. So patients are likely going to see someone that doesn't look like them. And I can say, you know, as a, as a Black patient and as a Black physician, by the time a patient gets to a provider, it's taken a lot for them to do that. It's taken a lot for them to get there. So I just want to encourage, you know, the providers here that we just extend our patients grace and, um, you know, really take the time to try to get to know them. If you want a patient to open up to you, they have to trust you. They have to feel comfortable with you. They have to be they have to feel that you care and they want to know that if they tell you something bad, that you're not going to make them have surgery. And patients are really scared that the only treatment they're going to be offered is surgery because that's what happened to their mom or that's what happened to their grandma and that didn't go well or they couldn't have any more kids and they don't want that. So I think it's just important that when we see a patient and know that they're here and they're talking about something as intimate as their cycles, that we really just give them grace and we give them kindness and compassion and let them know we're here to support them in whatever decision that they want. I think it's also important that we let our, our patients know, again, if they um, get a treatment plan that they don't feel comfortable with, that there are other options. You know, again, we've talked about the hysterectomy. And, and so I think sometimes when patients have heard or have been only given a surgical treatment option and that's not what they're one, or maybe they don't fully understand it, um, you know, they do nothing. They think that there's nothing else. They think they can't ask somebody else. They think they can't get another opinion. They think that this is this is the end all be all for me. And so reminding patients, I tell them, you're the boss of you. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You're the boss of you. You have to go home with you. You have to take the medication yourself. No one can make you do it. So if you don't feel good about the plan, then let's get a plan that you feel good about. And I think it's okay and just empowering patients you know, you can get another opinion. Even me, if you don't like what I have to say, or you don't like my offerings, you can see whatever doctor you want. And oftentimes patients don't know that. They don't know that they can see more than one person. They don't know that they can get an opinion. So really empowering our patients and letting them know we're here for their best care and their best interest, um, I think is really, really important, especially as we take care of minority patients who have been, you know, just not treated the best by our healthcare system again and again in multiple clinical scenarios, um, I think we just have to remind um, each other of that as providers. Absolutely, absolutely. And when we talk a lot about health disparity, and, and I know there has been some progress, but some people talk about it in the past tense, it's still unfortunately very existing uh, now and, and probably for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we and others actually have published on that in, in the field of fibroid. And, and as uh, Ms. Valpran mentioned, uh, uh, we found that black uh, women 
uh, with fibroid tends to be offered surgery a lot more frequent than uh, white women with fibroid. And, and, um, and then on the other way, when we actually did focus groups and asked the patient, it turned out it's the opposite, the exact opposite. Black women prefer a complementary medicine or medical or non-invasive therapy. Well, actually, white women uh, surgery was their first choice, ironically. So it's so, uh, you know, upsided. And, and when we talk to doctors uh, or the surgical kind of community, uh, they say, well, you know, black women have more advanced disease. They have bigger fibroids, et cetera, or they have comorbidity. They have other diseases. That's why, uh, you know, it's better to just go in and, and do surgery and get it over with which is totally untrue when we actually, there is some statistical method you can streamline. So when we compare apples to apples, the same size of uterus in, in black versus white, still black patients or black women in this case have, have been offered surgery more frequently, even after you uh, account for, or you call it stratify for the size of the uterus, comorbidity, any other existing diseases and so on. So clearly there's health disparity, not only in the early diagnosis and the management and so on, but also in the options of treatment offered to the patient. So we really have a lot of work to do in on this area as well. So um, before we close today, I would like to discuss some of the burdens and complications of surgery when it's considered as an option for uterine fibroids. Many patients are offered surgical intervention before medication, which is, again, very unusual in medicine. We teach our students and residents and fellows for any disease, probably with the exception of fibroid, that you start with simple uh, lifestyle changes simple prevention, and then you go to medical therapy, uh, you know, prescription, oral or injectable, depends what disease you're dealing with. Then if that fails, then you go to more invasive procedure and surgery. In fibroid, unfortunately, traditionally, because there was not a lot of medical treatment options, surgery many times, as we heard earlier, is the first line. Fibroid equals surgery, and typically in the form of hysterectomy. That really has to change. Uh, now we have, as I mentioned, FDA-approved medication, we have very good, uh, high-quality, durable, long-acting, and safe medical treatment options. This paradigm of surgery uh, first has to change. Um, and the reason we all advocate for simpler, non-invasive therapy, because they are usually safer. There's a lot of complications of hysterectomy, and I'm a minimally invasive surgeon, and I do it in selected cases or cases where it's indicated, but uh, hysterectomy has complications. And again, uh, Ms. Velbrand mentioned the ACOG uh, guidelines. In the last um, guidelines of June 2021, the ACOG actually did a good job describing the complication of hysterectomy, which is uh, immediate or short-term, and then intermediate. And then for the first time, they included long-term complications. Uh, immediate uh, uh, or intraoperative complications, we're all familiar with things that can go wrong during surgery. Uh, bleeding, if you injure another organ, uh, infection that can happen right after surgery. See, these are the short-term complications, and, and that usually means uh, staying in the hospital longer, more treatment, additional procedures, even additional surgery sometimes. Then there's the intermediate complication. After any surgery, including hysterectomy, there's a risk of scar tissue, adhesions forming, uh, between the, you know, the uh, bowel and the area, the top of the vagina that we uh, leave after we do the hysterectomy is called vaginal vault. And this scar tissue can cause more problems like bowel obstruction or pelvic pain, etc. Also, uh, this top of the vagina, the vaginal vault, can actually prolapse, can fall down after several years, five to six years uh, of hysterectomy, which again, cause more symptoms and need additional procedures and additional surgery, et cetera. Also, urinary incontinence is not an uncommon complication after hysterectomy. And then uh, the long-term complication, which is a relatively new concept, concept. We have published on that and others also. We looked at women who had hysterectomy uh, in their 30s and 40s without even removing the ovaries. So they still didn't go into early menopause or surgical menopause. And we looked at them 20, 30 years later compared to a very similar patient who did not have hysterectomy. And we found those who had hysterectomy had increased risk of strokes, dementia, cardiovascular disease, 
and, um, and diabetes and other complications. So all of this should really part of the uh, hysterectomy consenting session. And this is uh, the ACOG uh, June 2021 20, uh, guidelines is uh, requesting that. So um, I know this uh, topic is important to you personally and many patients who are diagnosed with uterine fibroid. Would you mind sharing some of your own personal experience here? Thank you, Dr. Hendy. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you going over those complications because I, I don't think that a lot of times um, we're fully aware. You know, we're we're trying as a patient. You're just trying to um, get to the best outcome, and and really, it, it's often a very very hard decision um, whether you want a hysterectomy. Um, you know, it's your personal choice or or a doctor has indicated that you want one. Um, it was very trying for me. Um, after I got married, I was told on my first doctor's visit when I, I knew I'd had fibroids, but um, you know, just trying to figure out a treatment option, um, a doctor told me that my uterus was way too compromised um, and that a hysterectomy was the only thing for me. And that was my first doctor's appointment when dealing, when, you know, wanting to find a treatment option to deal with fibroids. Um, so that for me was very, very devastating because it, it made me feel like I had somehow done something wrong, um, that this was the outcome that we had to get to. Um, and it, it was very, um, it, it was very challenging on my mental health because I felt like I had done everything right. I felt like I had gone to school, gotten a good job, gotten married, and just all the things that my mother told me that I was supposed to do. So when you hear, um, when you do all those things and now you hear that kind of still that wasn't good enough, um, and it still wasn't good enough for you now to get to the next step of being a mother, um, it, it has had a grave impact on my mental health. And I, I didn't have that hysterectomy. I, I ended up having a myomectomy where 27 fibroids were removed. Um, but next month, I'm going to be um, or I'm considering having a third myomectomy um, because now my small intestine is connected to my uterus. And there are fibroids that are beyond um, the small intestine or on the other side. I'm no doctor, so <laughs> pardon me if I, if I get that incorrect, but that's my understanding of it. Um, so I have to um, have a general surgeon, you know, move my small intestine to be able to get to that fibroid. So obviously that's a huge decision to be made. So the, the complications from my first myomectomy where 27 fibroids were removed, um, has caused that scar tissue that you talked about, Dr. Alhendi. So there's so much that happens and that goes into making these decisions. And I think it's important for um, patients to understand um, these additional complications that can happen. Um, while I say that, I also want to say that, you know, if surgery is the right option, um, then you know, I don't want anyone to be fearful of it, but I just always feel like we need to be completely informed so that we can manage whatever else may come from it. Um, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is that the my miscarriage that I had in October, you know, there are some thoughts that the fibroid um, that I have on the other side of my small intestine may have led to that, but there's still no guarantee with knowing that. Um, so I think, you know, while running this organization, while hearing other uh, community members talk about their journey, I'm still um, dealing with my journey as well. So having conversations like this is very, very helpful to me because it reminds me um, of the continued journey that I'm on to be my own best health advocate, to be the CEO of my body, to be someone who's working in conjunction with my physician so that I can 
ultimately have the best outcome, um, which is for me to be a mother. Um, so it's it's still very personal and fresh, and I have decisions to make as we speak. Um, but it's it's great to have these conversations and and for physicians to um, have the opportunity and take the time to hear the the patient perspective. Thank you, Ms. Valprin, for for sharing this, and and I hope and pray that everything will go well with your uh, surgery if if this is uh, going to be your decision. Um, so, Dr. Powell, would you mind sharing uh, how you navigate with your patients through the various treatment options against fibroid, and particularly uh, how you approach the potential concern about surgery as the primary uh, care practitioner? Sure. Again, you know, like we said, kind of said a little bit before, just making sure they feel good about the plan. And even if getting that second or third opinion is still surgery, at least the patient knows at that point, okay, I've had several evaluations. I've had several people look, you know, look at my case and and this is the recommendation. Again, I think the patient has to feel good about the plan. And um, like that Dr. Um, <laughs> Ms. Valverin said, um, you know, even if surgery is the best option, and sometimes I know that that's going to be the best option for the patient, maybe hearing it from several different people is the, you know, the confirmation that they need to know this is the best plan for me. But again, I think it really does come down to what's the best options for the patient and do they feel good about it? Um, making sure the patient understands all the risks because with any surgery and with not doing surgery, there's risk involved. So making sure the patient thoroughly understands those risks and those benefits so that they're making just a well-informed decision that's really going to affect their health and their future health. Absolutely. And and Ms. Valpran, we both have granted you honorary <laughs> for this recording. Yes. Uh, so thank you both so much uh, for sharing your insight. Hopefully, clinician can see why it's so important to discuss treatment options with their patient and work with them to formulate a patient-centered plan utilizing shared decision-making. I would also like to remind the audience that if they are interested in learning more about how to integrate shared decision-making into practice when managing patients with uterine fibroid, they can access another activity in this series that was dedicated totally for that. It's titled Enhancing the Value of Choice for Clinical Management of Uterine Fibroids Through Shared Decision-Making. In this particular snack, specific strategies for managing patients' specific concerns and fears regarding treatment are addressed. So I would like to summarize now today's discussion by uh, walking through our SMART goals, which are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That's where the acronym SMART comes from. This is what I hope that you will take away from this presentation to apply to your practice. One, recognize the significant economic impact of uterine fibroid. Two, identify the patient-specific impact of uterine fibroid on both disease-related factors and also quality of life. Three, recognize the major health disparities in the diagnosis and management of uterine fibroids in primary care setting. And fourth, uh, understand the impact of surgical complication on patient outcome in uterine fibroids. I would like also to encourage everyone to visit the CMEO Virtual Educational Hub, which provides free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients in uterine fibroids, including the other programs in this particular series. This CMEO snack is one of a four-part series that is a continuous initiative to reinforce personalized care for uterine fibroids, update practices, and improve patient outcome. We hope that you will take advantage and participate in all of the activity of the series. The choice to format the activity as the series has been made to, the, to deliver key points in shortened and time-sensitive format for the professional learner. In addition, by delivering contents in the series, you, the audience, have the opportunity to learn from multiple key uh, opinion leaders in this space. So please be sure to access uh, all the programs to optimize learning. The other topics we are covering include the guiding, uh, include guiding the clinical management of uterine fibroids, looking at the HPO, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, and the estrogen threshold hypothesis in relation to the novel treatment for uterine fibroids, and incorporating shared decision-making into practice to enhance the value of choice for our patient with uterine fibroids. 
I want to thank you, Dr. Powell, for teaching us so much today and for a great conversation. And hope I hope our audience have learned a lot about understanding the impact of uterine fibroids on the patients. Yes, thank you, Dr. Hendy. I'm I'm excited about this work and I'm excited about just learning and doing better for our patients. They deserve it. And so I'm thankful, you know, for the time and uh, for Dr. Valburn and for, for everyone. Thank you so much. I definitely would also like to thank uh, Ms. Valperin for teaching us so much today as well. I hope our audience have learned a lot about the patient perspective and the need for advocacy surrounding uterine fibroids and hope they will access the great work that the Wide Dress Project are doing. Thank you, Dr. Alhendi, and thank you for the work that you're doing and your constant uh, support and advocacy uh, for this community. We really appreciate you. Thank you. I also want to sincerely thank you, the audience, for your commitment to continuing your education on uterine fibroids. Together, we can strive to provide the best care for our patients who have this condition. To, re to receive credit for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation. We very much appreciate your feedback and want to hear from you, the audience. Uh, please tell us how uh, we can improve and what you liked and what we, you didn't like and what additional topics you would like us to address in the future as well.